I'm also having to kind of experiment <laughs> because I've, I've uh, messed this up. I think I, I hold my cards pretty close to my chest. Mm. And I think probably too much so for most of my life. And then I, th I think I've, out of different reasons, family loyalty or people don't really want to know all your stuff or uh, it's not the manly thing to do or whatever the reason was. And now I feel like I'm tr I probably overcorrected in the other direction and in some circles shared more than I probably wish I did. Mm -hmm. And now I'm trying to, what is that middle space? How, how's, what's a healthy boundary of information to share with somebody that's not an overshare? Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Bo. Hey everyone, today's episode is really special. Lindsay and I got to sit down with our real life friend and teammate, Austin Hoteling. Austin serves as the Vice President of Clinical Services here at Onsite, and he is responsible for the oversight and leadership of the Onsite clinical team. The incredible individuals who lead our in-person experiences, our intensives, and who lead the team at Milestones. I can't believe it's taken us this long to have a full episode dedicated to Austin. He's one of my favorite humans, honestly. He's brilliant, he's funny, and he's an incredible clinician. I know that I leave every interaction with him a little bit more in tune with myself, just by the way he carries himself and the way that he approaches things with empathy, curiosity, and intention. And he has such a great way of taking really big topics and grounding them in a way that feels personal and practical. So during this conversation, we talked about all the things. Literally, we cover the gambit, but a lot of it was about the mental health trends that we're seeing in so many of us as a result of the pandemic. And then Austin talked about how that's translated in his own life. So we talked about how he got into the helping profession, his journey to onsite, adult male friendships, parenting, and just some more things that are coming out of the last two years. This episode is one of my favorites that we've done recently because I love the way that Austin approaches this entire topic. So without further ado, meet our friend, Austin Hoteling. I don't know how we have not had Austin as a guest on the podcast. I know. He did like one of our full team ones. So he kind of introed it for me, but yeah, you know, we, he, haven't, he we haven't given him his, his whole own episode. hour. Yes. Let's do this. Everyone settle in for some time with Austin. Nice. Yes. Uh, Austin, I feel like you and I started it on site very close. Like when I came, you had started about six months prior. So you were kind of just a step ahead. You like prepared, <laughs> you prepared the land for me. <laughs> but it was so helpful. Like, I feel like the whole time it's been cool being on the journey with you because I feel like you and I are two people that kind of are bridging sort of and carrying forward some of like the amazing qualities of the old onsite as people know it. And then also trying to build the structure and the team as we want to continue to grow and do new things. And so I feel like a bridge and a conduit. And mm -hmm. I feel like you carried that weight too. Yeah. Of how do we honor the past and bring the good things forward and, and yeah. make sure we're not missing them. So I, I feel like a fellow, uh, I don't know, a peer in that same sense of mm -hmm. Lindsay for me as uh, a thought 
leader, but mm-hmm. a thought partner. Yeah. And I, I, your brain works totally different than mine, and I like it. Like, I've <laughs> always been a sucker for voices around a table being the the quality or the caliber of the voices around the table has always been a, a personal interest of mine. That's uh, the executive director of Milestones, Christopher. I, that was my first re- recollection of him. Yeah. Was his comments around the table. I feel the same way about you. It's just mm. that has to be part of this conversation or we aren't going to get where we want to go. Yeah. So thank you. I love working with you. It is. Same. You um, have such a great, I have laughed with you and uh, your partner, Christina, about this, that you like are, can be so childlike and so silly and so fun. And you also have like such a great cautious and like devil's advocate mind, you know, yeah. but th- how those th- two things come together, you just never know what side you're going to um, find. And I, I love like I both sides because <laughs> they're helpful, you know, it's like um, there, some of my favorite memories are early on. You had a water bottle that was actually an old Hershey's chocolate <laughs> bottle that, that you drink water out of. Oh, I forgot about that. I, I, forgot I was that dying to prank you, but you stopped doing it too soon. I was going to like fill it with chocolate one time, <laughs> but it That's never got awesome. to happen. So you've been at Onsite four years. Five in June. Five in, five June, in June. Almost five years. Yeah, five in June. Uh, how did you get here? How did you get into therapy? And what's your Two like? totally different questions. Like, do you I'll want take, the here at Onsite? I'll take both of them. Or mental health Why don't health you start with mental health and then. Okay. So I assume that was Mental first. health uh, <laughs> was a weird chain of events i was going medical school mm. i wanted to beat my dad and what he was doing so my dad's a dentist you wanted to be better at it so i wanted to be more than that so i was uh. either going to be an oral and maxillofacial surgeon or an orthopedic surgeon and i spent lots of hours in both operating rooms watching both of those throughout high school mm. and then um thought that's what i was going to do and then i, I left for a couple of years before I started college and came back and um, and I still thought that's what I want to do. So I enrolled in all the sci- hard science classes, my undergrad, and about a year, maybe six months into it, um, I was just not enjoying it. Mm. The chemistry classes and stuff and busting my butt, taking serious notes yeah. as hard as I could. And I was getting a B plus, A minus. And some of those classes and the kid that's setting the curve is reading the paper and doesn't take a note. And I remember thinking, I can't do that. And mm. that's not me. And so I had a lot of uh, emotional conversations, but but frustrating, self-critical conversations about I can't hack it and what I want to do. Uh-huh. So then in the middle of all of that, I came home for Christmas break and I'm standing in the kitchen with my mom and she asked me, have I ever thought about being a therapist? Mm. And my honest response was, what's a therapist? I'd, I'd never heard of one. Didn't yeah. know it existed. Oh, wow. So it wasn't a part of like your zeitgeist it was not, or your family I did not know system, it was a profession, or? that it, anyone did it. And really? so then she starts telling me about multiple extended family members that, and immediate family members that had all gone at different points and mostly varying experiences, but mostly positive. Mm-hmm. She started telling me about what it was and her limited understanding of what it is. And I was intrigued. Mm-hmm. Didn't know people did that for a living. So then I go back literally after Christmas break and changed all my classes to all family science kind of classes. Yeah. 180 totally. What made your mom ask you? 
I have no idea. I actually need to ask her why that conversation then, because she talked to me about other things like a banker, analytical <laughs> brain stuff, which is part of what you brought up at the beginning. I definitely have that side of my brain or the hard sciences. I do like that side. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Maybe it was what was going on in our family, extended family yes. at the time. We <laughs> need a therapist in-house. <laughs> I had kind of been our family's therapist early, Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, in different ways, uh, informally, without hire, you know. But um, We often talk about, like, the roles you play in your family. Like, I would definitely be, like, the entertainer or the clown. Like, what did you play in your family? Yeah, I would um, – the first thing that comes to my mind is is the golden boy. Mm. I – I don't even know that I was necessarily trying for that. I think there's perks in any role that somebody takes on yeah. in their family. There's pros and cons to all of them. But the golden boy kind of fit. I'm the oldest. And for different reasons, I did not want to add any tension or stress in mm. the family system. So I was going to just do whatever I had to do to be really good. And to be fair, that's part of my personality anyway, that I want follower. to be that way. Yeah, so... That was part of it. So she asked that. And then I started getting all these A's in all these classes, liking it, doing well in it, and then still inner critic beating me up going, oh, great. So I can get an A in a loser class. This was mm -hmm. my inner dialogue at the beginning. But I can't get an A in the, the manly class. The real hard thing. Which yeah. may tie into some of the other things we want to talk about in this podcast, but the manly things. Mm. And all my roommates had all the hard science books that they're cracking and and I remember after I shifted at my first homework assignment that I still, it's hard for me to say without smiling, but they asked, um, I was supposed to come home and make a collage about myself. <laughs> and I about died. I, I thought, I cannot, I can't do this. And asking my roommates for, do you guys have a magazine and glue sticks and a scissors? And them kind of teasing me and making fun of, of that and having a really hard time. So kind of fast tracking going, I remember one significant and uh, conversation with my dad. I can remember where I was walking on campus and having a like tearful but angry tears, kind of, and saying, saying this idea: I can get a, an A in a really loser class, but I can't get an A in the class that I want to get a good grade in and what I want to do. And and my dad listened to the whole thing, and I recognize that not everybody has an experience like this uh, at key moments, but for me it was pivotal. And he he listened, and he just said, Austin, I fix people's teeth for a living. And you're talking about helping influence somebody's lives. It's not even close to the same thing. Hmm. It's just, And it, he really built up what I was finding my natural gifting to be in anyway, but was having a hard time swallowing it. Yeah. And, and that was significant. So that was kind of the starting point. And then it was off to the races after that. And then on site was, I don't know if you want to put this one in the podcast, or not. <laughs> but I was sent by my previous employer to on site on a, on a mission kind of to make friends with miles yeah, and get to know him. Cause my previous boss who retired and I took her spot had known him or had some kind of relationship with him. And then she was gone, and so they wanted me to have a relationship, yeah. conversation. So I did, wasn't gunning for a job, wasn't trying to interview anything. But that really was the catalyst to a conversation with Miles. He kind of, on the last day of a three-day site visit, which is mm -hmm. a long site visit. I don't even know why I was here for three days. <laughs> <laughs> but on the last day, he kind of alluded to, hey, we should do something together. And mm -hmm. I'd never thought about it. And so I went home and started an eight-month better part of a year conversation with Miles about 
what it would look like to work with yeah. here full time, what, whatever that was. And, and that's how I got here. The structure was really different when you came in. So what did you come Very in different. as? I came in as the chief clinical officer. Okay. So, and just over kind, kind of, of what you're doing now. Yeah. Like it's been a full circle thing, came in focused on anything underneath the clinical umbrella mm -hmm. and onsite. And then for a season was specifically focused on the workshop intensive side. Mm -hmm. And then in about in the last year, it's gone back to overseeing everything. So it's, it's been a fun journey and it's changed and grown a lot. I like where we're going. Mm -hmm. I like the people I get to go there with. That makes yeah. a big difference to me. Yeah. You kind of reference in the story sort of the masculine, mm -hmm. you know, sciences versus yeah. the feminine sciences. And one, I'm just curious. I mean, I, I think it's true here. A lot of the therapists that we work with are women. Yeah. And um, I wonder what of that is because of desire and inclination versus um, sort of it being a feminine job. And I love the therapists that we work with that are men. And I think that they add such a richness to the conversation. Yeah. So I definitely see how that could be limiting if, you know, if somebody wants to be a therapist and they don't feel like they can because of gender or whatever. So curious what that experience has been like for you um, and how you think different about gender and how you think different about like, Things that can be stereotypical or or um, limiting as yeah. gender characteristics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the first part of that in my mind, it was it was an adjustment. There's, I think, and most of the male therapists that I've talked to about their experience in grad school relate to my experience of in some of their classes. Out of 120 people, there were four men in one of the classes I was in. So it was mm. really otherizing in that sense of. I'm, I don't, what's happening here? I don't yeah. really fit in. There's an, it's definitely not 50, 50. And yeah. we still have predominantly, you're right. Female therapists sit on site too. And I don't know all the reasons for that. I think it's changing and shifting, but I do think there's stereotypes that continue to get perpetuated, but they're improving around mm -hmm. emotional availability, emotional articulation, mm -hmm. having different emotional experiences being acceptable yeah. I think I have seen shifts and improvements in that, that there's gratefully, I'm starting to hear even here at Onsite in groups, men whose families allowed them to have emotions, but yeah. it's not that long ago and it's still not as broad as we'd want it to be where that was not the case. Mm -hmm. It was, you need to suit up, show up and be within unemotional, contained, strong, stoic, go-getter, you know? Yeah. So I think the the... The sensitivity, man, the idea of a man being sensitive and um, emotionally available is starting to get some good traction mm -hmm. and being seen as a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful for that. I think it's a game changer. And I see it at work too. Either if it's a male participant in a group, it adds that's a safe male yeah. feeling or a safe male presence. Yeah. It's a lot of healing that can happen in, in a short amount of time when somebody gets to interact with, uh, especially if they were wounded by men in their past. And so it's, I know it can go both directions, but being a, a male, that has been my experience, is it can have a really therapeutic impact if it's done well and you set the stage well and there's safety. You kind of alluded to that moment with your dad kind of standing out, like him saying, hey, I'm 
kind of giving you permission to to lean into where your giftings are and to lean into that emotionally feeling space and and curating experiences and coming alongside people. What was it like? Did that feel out of character out of your like from your home, or was that an expected like kind of moment? Why does it stand out? Um, it was not. It didn't stick out because it was abnormal. That I I didn't know he would respond that way in that instance, but yeah. but. I had, my dad was very emotionally present with me. Yeah. I, and he, we had a very candid relationship. So mm-hmm. it was um, not surprising, gratefully. Yeah. I think it was significant because it was such a, a junction moment, like yeah. a crossroads in, in a path in my life. And a, a moment of major self-doubt where you had somebody that you respect that yeah. really showed up with affirmation in a significant way. So that's why it stuck out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he wasn't undermining. I kind of worded it wrong. But he, he wasn't undermining what he did. He was just elevating teeth or one thing. Somebody's lived experience on earth mm-hmm. is is on a whole different level. And, yeah. and I, that was a shift in my mind. Yeah, that's important. What I get to do is there's value in it, you know. Mm-hmm. You are married to Christina. Yes. And you all have three kids. And so... Not only do you have to sort of practice this idea of emotional <laughs> presence and awareness in the office with all of us, but you get to do it at home as well. And so what are some of the things that you're learning on your parenting journey mm. oh my around? Gosh. Lindsay and I are like taking notes. I know. <laughs> Holy smokes. Um, I am in a season of, of being humbled I, I, the thing I, I don't know what I'm doing, I think is the the biggest thing. Like my goal for myself and parenting shifted quite a bit. I used to think again at the early stages of all of this, that I could parent well enough to hopefully avoid them needing any kind of healing or fixing later. And I don't realize that that's not possible. It's not realistic. So pretty quick, the goal changed for me and my tradition of, I wanted them to know that I love them and that I love God and and then they can figure out the rest of it later. And mm. that that for me uh, that a higher power God was somebody that they could approach in safety and find some kind of healing. Yeah. So if I can point them to a perfect parent ideally my stress as a parent imperfect parent went down and I would still say that so yeah, that's great. I, I still think that that's the the only goal I have, and yet the humility is coming in that I think I'm messing it up <laughs> pretty regularly. I, I the need for apologies gone up. Mm. Parenting kids that are very different than I was. I hear people say, "Oh, they're just like me." I don't really have a kid. I don't think that is just like me. So I I don't know what I'm doing. So it's more <laughs> I'm trying to match up with them, their interests, adolescents. we got two adolescents right now and it's giving me a run for my money. So, but I think we're on, on par with the, they know I love them and they know I love God and mm-hmm. I hope that they can get the help they need to fix what I'm getting wrong. You know, can you speak to parenting like your kids differently based on like you were saying, like tapping into their interest or cause I feel like, that's something that I've kind of worked through in my own journey is understanding that my parents parented us different. It wasn't a, um, it wasn't like equal or the same, 
but it was just. It was like individual? Yeah, very individual. Like the example I always think of is my brother is six years older than me. And so I kind of saw a lot of things before him. And we are vastly different humans in general. But he had to get B's and C's. And if he Mm. got B's and C's, then my parents would pay his car insurance. Wow. For me, if I got A's, my parents would pay my my car insurance. And I remember kind of pushing back and being like, that doesn't feel fair. Like Nicholas did this six years ago (laughs) and I should... But it was just that my parents understood that we were different humans and our skill sets were in different places. And, you know, he excelled in different areas than I did and capacity and all of that. But so how do we parent our children differently based on who they are as humans and balance that? Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to my mind, even when you share your example with your sibling, mm-hmm. is um, I have said out loud, and I'm sure I will again with my kids, they'll say, that's not fair, or you didn't do that, they get away with anything, or you you don't get them in trouble, or whatever, is uh, I'm not even going for fair. Yeah. It's not even a goal. I I'm, I am I mean, it would be nice if there's some semblance of equity <laughs> at home, but, um, but I'm trying to parent the best I can with you right now in this moment. And that's going to be different. And mm. yes, you, some of the things we hated here growing up that are, I think are just still true. So you are the oldest. Mm-hmm. I do expect more, not because you're the oldest, but you're older, you have you're more older, experience yeah. and you, so no, when you compare your 15 year old self to your nine year old sister, it's not going to be the same. Yeah. So, but the rest of the, your question is like their talents or their interests. We have one, our oldest is uh, book smart, and he's self-sufficient as far as homework goes. We never have to ask him if he's d- caught up or doing anything. He's just on the ball, and yeah. he gets straight A's, and he's doing great. Our middle daughter is the one that um, I – it's currently my assignment to check with her on a weekly basis if she's caught up. And, and a yes is not sufficient. I have to go in and actually look, mm-hmm. make sure it's caught up. And she measures herself against – him. Gotcha. And so a lot of our, what you're asking, I think of it in the sense of trying to, how do I convey to her? Because it's true too, she's brilliant, but not in the same a different way. book smart kind of way. And that's the way that gets currency and appreciation yeah. right now at school. And so the creative side or the musical side or, or artsy side is sometimes less tangible and less visible for her. Mm. And, and I'm trying to figure out ways to highlight, pull that out, draw that out. Yeah. My wife's better at that than I am. Mm. So I'm grateful for that partnership. I love that. And when you said, like, I'm trying to do the best I can with you in this moment, it even gives you permission to have grown as a parent to say, like, yeah, when you were nine, I did this differently, and I'm a different parent. Yeah. I understand more, you know, like maybe what I made – a really big stickler to you. I don't actually think that's as much of a big stickler anymore. Like it just gives you permission to be an evolving, changing human too. Hey there. If you've been listening to the podcast long, you've probably heard us talk about intensives. And maybe you've thought, I'm really interested in that, but I don't know if I could find the space, the time, or even the room in my budget to make that work. That's why I want to let you know about a unique way to experience on-site intensives. We are now creating three-day online intensives. They provide you the opportunity to get clear about where you are, how you got there, and how to get where you want to be. Utilizing a variety of experiential tools and techniques, these unique offerings allow you the space and time to explore and stay in an extended space of healing. They're optimized and customized to meet your needs, and they can happen from the comfort of your own home. 
If you want to learn more about the unique experience of working one-on-one with one of our trusted guides and therapists, you can connect with our admissions team to see if this experience might be right for you. You can email them at admissions at onsiteworkshops.com or give them a call at 800-341-7432. Now, back to the interview. It's been a tough season for parenting. And it's been been a tough season. I think we're kind of in a new evolving season of the pandemic, um, Mm -hmm. thankfully. But the last couple of years have been really hard. And I know that like our therapists have been, especially on the front lines. And one of the things that we talk about and learn about is secondary and vicarious trauma. Mm -hmm. And uh, just how do you think about and hold the weight of the team that is weary from caring so much in times like these? That was a great question. That is a good question. And kind of with all these, I, I... I know we're not getting it perfect. I think the things we're doing right are, there's a lot of conversation. I feel like the amount of time spent investing in the relationships of our team uh, and and conversation yeah. about what their life's like right now has gone up. I agree. And I, I don't it's think it's a bad thing, but it's it's everybody. I can kind of point to a person on my team and they're all including myself kind of in a, in a season that's just weightier. It just feels heavier. And mm-hmm. so I think allowing the space, prioritizing time for direct check-ins and how are they doing before we get to their job description. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kind of have said but here, and I know that our career is a little different than this uh, in this way, but we hire people first, therapists second. And if I don't, okay attend to it in that order, I won't have a therapist. <laughs> yeah, you really won't. <laughs> to show up. They'll, that's they'll, what they're looking yeah, for. Yeah, they have to have the personal connection first. And I think I need the same thing. I made my own New Year's goals. So far, I've done pretty good. I think I missed once of some external check-in for me outside of work with a male relationship that's a good checks and balance for me. And I have not done a good job with that historically. Is that like once a week or No, for me, day? it's every other month. Okay. So it's been enough so far. Um, well, every other month, there's two friends. So every, once a month, I'm talking to one oh, yeah. of them. That's awesome. But every other month, maintaining that relationship. So I'm kind of trying to do the same thing here at work. I think the questions that I'm not sure if we're always getting right is, how much do you lean into that? How much do you mm. talk about that personal, their personal life? And uh, I know that my supervisory relationship is not a therapeutic relationship. And, and yeah. But it kind of is. I mean, it all comes into the same space. So making sure we're attending to the things that we need to and still leaving an appropriate work expectation of we've got goals and yeah. Yeah. a direction and a plan and things that need to get done, you know. The, you touched on something that I just am curious about is friendships yeah. for men. I think adult friendships for men can be really hard because, like, a lot of times – once you hit a certain season, it's harder to stay in touch with like friends you grew up with. And then mm-hmm. where I feel like there is a lot of value placed for women placed mm-hmm. around like creating community or having moments of connection, yeah. that that can be sort of looked as more of a luxury for a man. And I'm just curious in your own experience, 
I know that can be like awkward and clumsy, but like how, how do you stay connected? And you said you're intentionally calling somebody, but like for yeah. somebody that's struggling with that, do you have any advice on? I have not been effective until I, I literally have it on my calendar. Do they know that you're doing this or are you I just? I told both of okay. them. I, I said, yeah, just so you know, your my goal is to call you every other month. And, uh, and they were excited. It's, we had periodic, sometimes once a year, sometimes every other year conversations, but both of them have voiced, it's interesting, you lead that way, and then both of them have said, no, this is good for me too. Hmm. And they don't have a lot of it either. Yeah. And so I th- it was kickstarting it with the calendar. My life, I feel like I'm governed by my calendar, my phone. Hmm. My calendar hmm. on my phone is is my brain, you know, and so if it's on there, it's going to happen. And I had to put it on there. And then I think the other thing I watched was there's been a neat, some of it's probably age, but some of it's shared vulnerability is a softening with mm-hmm. some of these guys that I've known for years. But our relationship probably moved from more joking and positive support, but and sometimes even depth, but there wasn't a softness. That's kind of going back to that thing, a sensitivity or softness. There has been now. Mm. And they'll, it's not uncommon, but it, it would have been really uncommon a few years back for the, us to end the phone call with, hey, I love you. Thank you. This is significant for me. And I, that's, I don't even know that that's still totally comfortable to roll off my tongue. Yeah. But it's genuine. And, and it's, it's, uh, They've either started that or led that way or will follow up that way. And I'm starting to hear that more and more from male friends, you know? Yeah, I love that. So it's good. I think we're headed in the right direction. It's just Yeah, it's so interesting even having traveled a good bit and seeing other cultures um, in Latin America or in other continents where that like there's affection Mm -hmm. and physical touch between – same sex is not sexualized at all in a really lovely way. Yeah. And that I've always wonder around our context, it feels like so much of physical touch is sexualized and, and intimacy is sexualized that it feels like it does us a disservice. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I agree. It's, I don't know. I have to think about that more. It made my brain spin a little bit. Hmm. The lot, like there was one phone call with one of my best friends that just ended the last check-in last month. Um, he's typically been the one that's been the jokiest. And he just, at the end of it, I said, well, thanks for letting me call you. I'll keep calling you. I've fulfilled my goal this year kind of a thing. And, and he, he said, no, I made a joke out of it. And then it, but then he stopped and he got emotional. He just said, you're a true friend. Yeah. And that paused for about 10 seconds. And then he went right back to joking. Well, I'll talk to you later. Tell your family hi. And went back up into that upper energy. Mm-hmm. But for a minute, for just a second, it was, this matters, you know. And yeah. I, I need more of that. Well, yeah, I think people right now, myself included, it's yeah. like with being in a season of a lot of transition, world feeling really heavy. Mm-hmm. There's like just a sense of loneliness or like a desire for deeper connection. With friends and family, and I think that it's like when you have it and you feel seen and noticed that you want to acknowledge it so that people come back and do that again. And so I think um, I love that he called it out, you know, like this is really meaningful and you're a really good friend because 
Otherwise, it feels hard to contain it or grasp it sometimes. And you're like, oh, like, no, these are the things that matter to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I'm also having to kind of experiment <laughs> because I've, I've uh, messed this up. I think I, I hold my cards pretty close to my chest. Mm. And I think probably too much so for most of my life. And then I, th- I think I've, out of different reasons, family loyalty or people don't really want to know all your stuff or uh, it's not the manly thing to do or whatever the reason was. And now I feel like I'm tr- I probably overcorrected in the other direction and w- in some circles shared more than I probably wish I did. Mm-hmm. And now I'm trying to, what is that middle space? How, how's... What's a healthy boundary of information to share with somebody that's not an overshare, even yeah. with close friends? It's like when you get into questions about how much do you share about your marriage or your relation, mm-hmm. romantic relationship with somebody else? How much do you share? I don't know the answers to all of that all the time, but mm-hmm. I, I'm, I have had some good success, I think, trying to get out of my own comfort zone with going I, the, in a way that doesn't dishonor anybody, family, yeah. relationships that you're yeah. processing through or talking about, but still frees me from an excessive lockdown container. Yeah. I, it's funny when people, I used to say it closing and now mm-hmm. McKinsey will do it in my yeah. steed, which is great. But using the same deck of card analogies that for me, it's like really important that I answer things honestly. Yeah. Right. And that, that, that whatever I'm saying feels true and authentic to where I am. And so I remember when I was trying to figure out how to frame my onsite experience I wanted to be able to tell everybody the truth about it. Yeah. But I didn't, everybody didn't deserve the same level of detail. Right. And so I used the deck of cards analogy that you referenced, and I could kind of say, hey, I'm going to play, like, this person deserves for me to play a card and tell them a little bit more. Yeah. Without all 52. Without showing them all. And yeah. there's some I keep back right. for myself and some, some people that, didn't deserve any cards at all. I like and that. And I just say, that's hey, you know, that's for me. for me and not for you to know. Yeah. But that it really is sort of contingent on the relationship, mm-hmm. the setting, the amount of mutual trust. Yeah. Um, and that I have, I don't have to tell everybody everything, but I also, I had to lean more into the, I think I grew up self-protective mm-hmm. in a way. And especially when what I needed to share could be seen as disparaging of somebody mm-hmm. else mm-hmm. or... Um, even if it's part of your own story. Even if it's yeah. part of my own story, I just but wouldn't tell anybody. <laughs> and then I felt realized I was like carrying the weight of the yeah, world. Alone. And I didn't... Nobody knew until I just couldn't carry it anymore. And then I felt like mm. I had to drop it all. That... and. And I was like, oh, there, I could have gotten help along the way. You right, know, this right. didn't have to end up that way mm. if I had, like, started to share it better while I was in it. And yeah. that it's not me being unfaithful or disloyal to somebody else for me to share my experience. Yeah, I like that a lot. I'll use the card analogy. I had never so thought good. of that before. I, I think about it all the time since Lindsay told it to me. And I think my family system is very different, and I approach it in a different way in that our circles were really big. Yeah. Like there was no delineation between extended family, internal family, small. Like it just was like everyone knows everything. So the card analogy for me meant, oh, I don't, I I get to hold these and I get to honor and protect my story. And you actually, I assumed everyone was demanding I paid all 52 cards, but that people only like, 
you know, they had only been safe enough to get one or two cards. Yeah. Um, and that was revolutionary for me. And a lot of my uh, Living Center program was about reclaiming the agency of my own story. Yeah. And yeah, so I think it's just interesting in those two pendulums. Like we can, we have to find the middle somehow and it, and it's clumsy and it's weird and we just get better at it when you mess up and say like, okay, this wasn't safe to go this far, but it'll safe to be go this far. And just, you know, I think you went through experience that way. Yeah, yeah. I like it. And I, I, I think the only way... Nobody gets that perfect on round no. one. I, no. I feel like I'm, uh, I know I need to sh show, it's important for me in my life right now to show more of my cards. Mm -hmm. I think to more people. Yeah. But I'm not getting it 100%. I'll, I'll sh share something. I'll show a card to somebody mm -hmm. and go, oh, I probably would have liked to kept that one <laughs> in a little bit longer. But I'm glad I'm risking it. It feels like a, a uh, an investment and mm -hmm. not an unwise, unmitigated risk. You mm. know, it's like I'm trying to learn how to be better at including support. Yeah, Show, I've sh most of my life has been showing up professionally or personally for a bunch for other people. It's mm. hard to, and I don't want to swing it too far on the selfish side. There's somewhere in the middle. I think also just. I feel like our worlds have been really small with COVID. Like we've gotten really good at just talking to a very small group of people. Like we literally quarantined with people. Um, and so my husband and I at every Sunday night for the last probably month or so, we've said, okay, what's one relational risk you're going to take this week? Because we realize we're super lonely and our world's gotten small, you know? And so yeah. we like say it like, Hey, we listed out well, what's your relational risk. And then we check back on Sunday like what sorts of things do you, so, are you doing? Um, mine was I reached out to a friend I haven't seen in a long time and asked her to get lunch. I was like, hey, do you want to get lunch? Uh, my husband's was <laughs> joining Meetup. Oh, yeah. That? Like, so he's oh, like, yes. I, I, I need to extend the places I meet people. Mine was I got on Peanut. I'm trying to make some friends, some mom friends on the app Peanut. It's like um, Tinder for moms. <laughs> wow. You know, so those are just some things. And it and it could be as small as a relational risk I'm making this week is that I am like going to say hi to someone new at work. Like it just could be really small, but um we've just been doing some of those that's things so just to kind of extend out. I think I that's like a trend that. I've been seeing with a lot of people and like loneliness and stuff. So what are some of the other trends that maybe you've been seeing as we're in this new phase? Of yeah, a you kind of alluded to one of them, but I see it again personally and professionally yeah. is uh, heightened emotions. It's not mm. even necessarily one more than another, but whatever people are feeling, it's amped up a, a few notches. Yeah, and that's a trend I think we're seeing it on site that I'm seeing in my social circles. I feel personally, I think another trend, gratefully, because we're working hard here to try and help destigmatize therapy is that, that, that there's some success with that. There's mm. people that are coming because it's more framing it as you deserve this, this is your turn. Yeah. And that's exciting to see that as a trend. I feel like I'm seeing that more and more. Yeah. That's a, almost like a, a, a mission goal mm -hmm. of ours, and yeah. there's some success there. And then another huge one we're seeing, with no surprise considering the dynamics we've talked about, is just couples work. Yeah. There's a massive trend right now, at least that we're trying to field more than we're able to adequately treat mm -hmm. as couples work right now. Mm. So we're trying to figure out how do we scale that and really respond to this increased need that couples are 
needing to focus on their relationship. Is it because our individual like window of tolerance, like we're all individually struggling, so then it's showing up in our relationships? Because I know we say it on site, like how you show up for yourself is how you show up for others. Or is it that time together um, in a different season? And a lot of people have been home together. Maybe one of them traveled for most of their career and now they're home. Like what are some of the things yeah. around that? I think uh, I hear people have a lot of hypotheses. I don't know if any of us know for sure. You're I think we'd be crazy it. to not say that the pandemic and being cooped up hasn't had an impact yeah. on relationships. There's no question that it has. I just, I think we probably will know slowly over the next two years why mm -hmm. this is showing up in droves right now. Yeah. Um, Were you in the conversation when someone was uh, saying, attributing some of it to the fact that when people are together for such a long period of time, they started disclosing more. Oh, I don't think I was in that conversation, but I've heard stuff like that. I just thought it was so interesting that it's yeah. like, oh, they just started to let their guard down more in the relationships and disclose more about, you know, past infidelities yeah. or hobbies or whatever that was causing issues. I thought that was That's really intriguing. interesting. So I think we'll un understand the reasons more over the next year and a half. Mm -hmm. But it's it's a wave mm -hmm. uh, that kind of we thought would be there, and now it's here, and we're trying to figure out how to get in front of it because there's people need help in that area. Are we um, seeing it play out like with people separating or divorcing too? Like, are there are we at a point where we can see the effects of that? Or are we still a little behind? I that think curve there too? are spikes in that. Mm -hmm. I think the angle that we're looking through here at Onsite Gratefully is still on the repair connection yeah, side. Definitely. So it's, but yeah, trending. I think that uh, we've seen the same thing with medicated, medicating behaviors. Mm -hmm. Those have gone up during this pandemic. People cooped up, they're, they're acting out in different ways. And so I, splitting up, divorces, life mm -hmm. stressors, those have all gone up. Uh, I'm grateful that on this side, it's people trying to still re make repair and connect. Yeah. We talked about medicators the other day that COVID did a weird thing with medicators where so many of the things we used to use that were more socially acceptable, like working or serving or, you know, hosting and gathering and keeping ourselves busy got stripped away. And so I think a lot of us found we're left alone with like the less socially acceptable medicators, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's home. a good point. Interesting. But. I'd love to hear more for people that are struggling with like the heightened emotion yeah. trend that you're talking about. Are there things practically that people can do if they're feeling that heightened sense of anger or sadness or they their emotions feel heightened and more unpredictable than they've felt in the past? Yeah. The first one, again, maybe this is because I need this more, but the first one that comes into my mind is is going back to that support network. I. I've had to tell people, even just for myself, my I, I'm aware that at different seasons in this last couple of years, my fuse was shorter. Yeah, I hadn't done anything that would create irreparable damage in a relationship or get me fired or anything like that. But I just knew in my gut that mm -hmm. the patient's fuse was shorter or the irritability trigger was quicker and and things like that and so it was important i've heard other people say the same thing just to give voice to that externally and tell somebody else yeah i'm aware of this and i don't want to go down that track so i just need an outlet um, yeah so that's one is do is there self-aware if there's no self-awareness it's going to come out and they won't even know it um so it's slowing down in the, the mindfulness side that sometimes people blow past too fast but i've got to have a way to slow down be more mindful enough to catch myself 
before I say something I'm going to regret or do something I'm going to regret. And if, if I'm don't have that awareness yet, that's my first order of business. Mm. Come do a program here or focus on something around mindfulness and slowing down that there's reality in that you can lengthen a fuse. You can cut off a pattern or a circular pattern before you just push repeat. That's possible. Even before you have to figure out how to, what to do different. Yeah. I can at least push pause and stop a cyclical behavior, but you need help to do it. So Mm -hmm. you got to reach out to somebody or come through a program or do one of the digital classes. I think that that's a perfect opportunity for some of the digital stuff that we're doing. doesn't even mm-hmm. make somebody leave their house. Yeah. But it, We've got a great one on the calling of becoming emotionally smart perfect. that just helps you begin to frame your emotions and what you're feeling and yeah. um, have a language for it. Yeah. I think that's probably the biggest one that doesn't take much. I think we're seeing a lot of people too with like online intensives, not having to leave your house and being able to do this work because I – we use the word acuity a lot, but like the need and the depth of intentional, intense care has really increased in this season. And so we've been doing, I mean, that's another pivot. Another thing yeah. that came out of uh, this season is that we moved a lot of our intensives online, which has been very cool. Yeah. Uh, we were uh, skeptical. The peak behind the curtain was if they yeah. would even, how effective would they be? It was a new, but we've never done online. Yeah. Did it tra- before. Would it translate? Yeah. Or would it translate? And so much of what we do at Onsite's experiential. Can you make that happen online? And that's one of the biggest gains, like you said, to me and from my clinical end of things was it works. You can do it experientially online. We can have mm-hmm. our onsite fingerprint that makes our style unique and still have it translate to online programs. And people that we'd ask, how did it compare to other in-person experiences that they'd had in therapy before, inside, on-site, outside, on-site, didn't matter. And they uniformly said it was at least as effective, if not more, mm. than other in-person experiences that they'd had, which, which blows wild. my mind. So that's a positive surprise outcome that I didn't anticipate when COVID rolled out. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that's a good indicator. Yeah. yeah. Well, awesome. this has been so fun. So fun. Always fun to talk to you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.